0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inders, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Adam Crowley, the author of a New Game Studies book called Representations of Poverty in Video Games. Before we jump right in, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice and share this episode with your friends and family, I guess. Today's book argues that video games frame contemporary middle-class worries about poverty in the United States throughout the book, considers how the academic area of inquiry, known as game studies, has developed over time and makes use of such scholarship to present, frame, and value its major claims and findings. In its conclusion, the book models how poverty themes might be identified for the purpose of gaining greater insights into how games can shape, and also be shaped by the player's economic expectations. Adam, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: (laughs) I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, of course, including your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now.
4: Okay. Well, in terms of in terms of my favorite game, there's probably a number. I mm. think over the last number of years, the frequency with which I've gone back to Skyrim would probably suggest that Skyrim's been pretty important to me, at least for the last decade. Yeah. Um, prior to weird it feels weird to say I've been playing it on and off for a decade because there aren't too many other games like that. but um I think when i was when I was really young, uh, like when I was first introduced to to video games, um i think uh, uh super mario brothers on like the nintendo um and even a game like clue clue land which i don't think anybody thinks about anymore um <laughs> has vanished has vanished into history yeah um uh was a fun one um but you know the the um uh anyway there's a, there's a range of others i think right now i'm 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 mystified by the the depth and the breadth of games like um uh, elden ring and uh mm-hmm from a few years ago witcher 3
3: of course uh,
4: which are games that are just so enormous that i've I've often had the experience of feeling like the games don't need me (laughs) to 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 be themselves like the player is kind of an afterthought (laughs) because there's simply so much here so i'm still struggling with figuring out uh what that means for games and for gaming and that might just be my own reaction um and then there's games like Mass Effect and things like that so, uh, that I, I can talk about too. But yeah, there's a, there's a number of games that I find exciting. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons that I am choosing to write about games and think about games is because of the amount of time people are uh, committing to gameplay. And mm-hmm. one of the big questions for me is, you know, what is the value of that time uh, for the individual player? I, I yeah. think in terms of my bio... Uh, that comes from my background as an English major, uh, mm-hmm. English, English literature, uh, both kind of undergraduate and then master's and PhD, um, because one you know, significant theme or concern for me as I moved through the various stages of being an English major is this question of, of how and why uh, a literary work um, brings value to or can bring value to. Uh, a reader's life or or, or or readers' experiences and so yeah. when it comes to video games and and how I enjoy them and why they enjoy them that central question is is always kind of in the background for me it's not just as crude as what am I getting out of it but I guess it's a question of you know what might what might players get out of this um, to make it worth you know in the United States the department of labor is 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 tracking um, a number of things in terms of how people spend their time but they have some statistics on game playing in the United States mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, it's something like two hours a day on average, which to someone who plays video games all the time, that may not sound like a significant number, for, but for a lot of people, you know, 14 hours a week or so playing games is, is a significant part of their life. Um, and there's, there's of course, many people who spend a lot more. Um, so, you know, that, that question, that concern just feels more and more relevant to me um, as I work in this field for longer and longer periods of time. And in terms of kind of living in the United States, and I know many countries have had the same experience over the past couple of years, but, you know, as we've moved through the pandemic and people have found themselves with sometimes a lot less time, sometimes a lot more time to dedicate to, you know, game playing experiences. I think, I think this question just becomes more and more relevant, um, to people who, maybe grew up playing video games you know in their 20s in their 30s 40s 50s you know 60s um what am i getting out of this or what what might i get out of this um just becomes a more and more significant question i think
3: hmm. so um how many how many hours a week do you uh, actually play <laughs>
4: <laughs> well that's a good question. Because with 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 a with a two year old, there's very few hours yeah. uh presently in the past few in the past few years. But I think, you know, if I look back, let's say over the last the last decade, um I would play video games kind of recreationally in the evening. Okay, so it's something that like after work, um, after uh, like after when people kind of uh, traditionally dinner in new England, where I, where I I live, Mm -hmm. um, the early, early to middle evening, an hour or two would would be when I would do it. Sometimes on the weekends I would do it. The, the thing that, that this may just be the pandemic, uh, making me think about things a bit differently, but the, the way I think about video game playing now is that, you know, I'm 43, I'm 43 years old and I'm more and more aware that, um, video game playing is 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 kind of television time or screen time yeah and while i certainly value uh screen time like personally for a a lot of reasons there's also this question of you know i have many other aspects of my life that are competing um competing for that or with that uh, or in some instances it's not a competition at all uh so i think you know in my 30s and 40s it's it's it comes down to um, uh, a couple hours every other day, maybe some time on the weekend, and then figuring out now how to make it a meaningful part of of my life. Um, and again, that goes back to that question of well, what am I getting kind of out of this? Casually, um, you know, it's it's fun to just relax and be entertained, uh, but it's also kind of at this point, it's like, well, you know, I can the clock is ticking a little bit, and so I, yeah. I value my hours a, a little bit differently. Than I might have when I was, you know, uh, in 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 high school or middle school or uh, you know, uh, early career things like that. So mm. that's that's generally how it goes. Um, um, yeah, for me. You know. I mean, also
3: that's it's fascinating since um, there there was a time, let's say two or three years, maybe four or five years ago. So and. I didn't really notice it at first, but then something hit me because I was playing video games and um, I used to also listening, I was listening to podcasts at the same time. So I began to wonder, do you really focus upon any, on any of those two? What What do you actually, what is actually going on in my life? What, what is it what I'm doing? <laughs> because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, uh, by the way, I'm also 43, that makes us, um, something i guess i don't know but that's great <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm feeling i'm feeling this so um circling <laughs> back then actually um, to your book representations of poverty in video games how did you come to write it
4: yeah so a few years ago i wrote an, a a different book um, that was concerned with uh, representations of wealth in video games mm-hmm. um, called the wealth of virtual nations and when I completed that or as as I was writing that project, it became more and more obvious to me that I could say a lot of things about about wealth, but that there were many, many other things to be said about poverty and also what we might describe as like a middle class experience
2: yeah
4: that just didn't fall into the scope of that first book, or if they did they they didn't really i didn't have the time or space to say very much about it so the immediate context was coming out of um, uh, that book with a sense that there was more that I, I wanted to say, but that I wasn't quite sure how to say it yet. Mm-hmm. I had been very uh, impressed by and influenced by uh, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century. Oh, which yeah. Which is a great, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a massive book, but it's a yeah. really good book. Yeah, I, I read it when it was translated into English, uh, must have been around 2014. mm mm-hmm and that kind of set me on the path for the first the first book the wealth of virtual nations um, and and as and as time went on and i was able to kind of you know not think through piketty's book because it's a, it's a it's a fantastic book but i just as i got some distance from it I, it became possible for me to think about um, engaging more game study scholarship kind of on its own terms yeah. Um, and so the the my research agenda kind of sh- uh, shifted, um, kind of out from uh, the focus that was mostly on Piketty and trying to connect him to a lot of game study scholarship from like the early 2010s. Um, for for a bunch of reasons, like I can always detail later, but I kind of stepped out, and I was able to look back over the, the previous three or four years. So this is like 20. 2017, I'm looking back over uh, a lot of game studies publications from maybe like, you know, 2014 on. And I just realized there was all this really great work about identity that Mm -hmm. had been uh, created. And that was fairly new uh, in in terms of the field. And I read all these great, you know, monographs and chapters that dealt with that dealt with uh, the gender and race and uh, ethnicity um and as I looked at it i thought this stuff's this stuff's really exciting I'm not seeing much in here about poverty oh. um mm-hmm. not that it's not like relevant to what people are writing about, but poverty seems to me to be a relevant aspect of uh an individual's life that that could be considered in in some of the same, same ways or in related ways to some of the great scholarship on gender and race and a a, a number of other issues. And so I kind of thought, okay, you know, I'm still interested in thinking about poverty from as an after effect of the first book. Um, And there's a good foundation now uh, to kind of jump into uh, some more serious work for myself. And that was kind of the impetus for it.
3: I see. Well, um... If I understand you correctly, you consider gaming as a modern form of slumming and explore sorry explore the ways in which selected titles such as World of Warcraft focus upon poverty. And this very argument turns to the field of literary studies to identify analytical frameworks for addressing and understanding these themes. Now... Let's deep dive a little deeper into your book and start with the with the use of the word slumming.
4: Sure. So slumming is used here uh, as an extension of the term that's been used since really um, the late, uh, the late 1800s kind of early early 20th century uh, to describe essentially um, middle class, or otherwise affluent individuals uh, going out to take a tour or a survey of what we might call a ghetto or an impoverished area. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a social phenomenon that begins um, kind of in Victorian England uh, and the United States at about the same time. And it provides this, you know, certainly fraught. So I'm not describing it in good terms. I'm just trying to be as as straightforward as I can. It -hmm. describes this experience of people basically, you know, moving out and observing uh, what they perceive as the living and working conditions of the poor as a form of entertainment. At the end of that experience, they return home and there have been no consequences for them. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there may certainly be consequences for the people that they're representing. And in the, um, in the early 2000s, uh, there's a piece that comes out, I think, in the Baltimore Sun, which is a newspaper in the United States, mm-hmm. that makes a connection between um, kind of slumming or such tourism and a lot of popular, popular culture. Uh, From the early 20th century, a lot of like crime dramas and uh, other kinds of television shows that give viewers essentially the experience of, um, you know, uh, slumming with people of lower social social economic status from the comfort of their own home.
2: So,
4: you know, and this is certainly not a new phenomenon uh, in the United States in across a number of media um once slumming begins in the in the late 19th century there's a number of novels uh associated with literary naturalism that you know give uh literate you know well-read usually middle class upper middle class readers the experiences of seeing people in ghetto environments and there's a there are you know this a history of film uh being concerned with slums and things like that so the idea of connecting slumming to uh, different forms of media um, including video games isn't particularly isn't particularly new but what really hadn't happened yet as far as I could tell was a real serious uh, consideration of what slumming might look like uh, in video games and how the concept of slumming could be used as a framework for understanding video games yeah. and I'll give a real quick example of that mm-hmm. if, if, if it's useful yeah um, I mentioned Skyrim a little while ago if you um if you played if you played Skyrim, which is—I'm assuming most people are familiar with it at this point—but if you're not, it's a it's a fantasy role-playing game. Um, and in the game, there is a there is a city uh, called Wilhelm, uh, Windhelm that has a self-described slum,
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, and the slum is kind of sectioned off from the rest of the city. And if you if you wander into this city, what you find out as a player, generally, is that the slum is the home for a number of what are called dark elves. Um, And they live in this slum and they identify their lives as being quite oppressed um, because they are uh, a racial minority in the city and kind of politically and economically Mm -hmm. um, they have strained resources and there's a lot of forces kind of against them uh, within Windhelm. So the slum experience for them is this really awful experience. Yeah. And if you start to explore Windhelm, uh, there's there's a lot of visual evidence that that's true. You can see that kind of buildings are kind of decrepit and so on and so forth. But but one of the fascinating things that happens is that if you go into uh, – there's like two merchants, I think, in, in that slum.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, if you go to speak with the merchants, um, they have uh, the same amount of uh, – the same kinds of items and the same kinds of financial resources that essentially every other merchant – or many other merchants in the game have. So one of the interesting things about that game is that it gives you this experience of thinking you're in a slum, but when you start to engage with the economic systems in the game, one of the things you find is that actually, you know, these people have the same resources as everybody else. So it hmm. creates this weird effect in the game where from, you know, from the player's perspective, there's no economic consequences for you being in the slum because you can spend money just like you can everywhere else. Uh, yeah. But it's, it makes you think about, well, okay, but the story of the slum is that these people don't have anything. Um, so why, why should they have the same kinds of items in the stores? And why right. should the shopkeepers have the same amount of, same amount of uh, finances? And what's interesting to me about that is it makes you stop and think more broadly about the game. Uh, Skyrim is a game that covers this incredibly large land area with a number of different cities or holds, um, a number of villages, a number of merchants. And one of the things you can become aware of pretty quickly is that the financial system isn't just weird in the actual literal self-described slum. As you go throughout Skyrim, there's all this economic consistency, uh, regardless of how remote a town might be regardless of the, you know, the war conditions that may be happening around the town, the whole idea of supply and demand just doesn't apply to the game. Now that's not a fault of the game developers by any means. But one of the things that it it can make you aware of is the fact that you're being shown these different kinds of poverty uh, and extreme wealth, but it's all happening without any real economic consequences for the player. And so that that kind of that moment or that kind of distinction helps me think a little bit about um, Skyrim uh, as something like a sl- a slumming simulator, yeah. um, which may not be a very, you know, I'm not trying to give like a negative spin on the game necessarily, but it, it's just useful or useful for me anyway, to think about gameplay experiences where economic systems are represented that include impoverished people um, uh, but those representations have you know very little consequences, very little in the way of consequences for uh, for the player.
2: Mm.
3: I was wondering uh, listening to you uh, to you, um, explaining this, um I was wondering, have you have you tried to figure out whether the when it comes to the character building or the characters you meet up, the merchants, the actual merchants uh, in these areas, do they address this in some way? Are they talking about their typical, let's say, clients in the slums?
4: That's a really good question. I think the the short answer would would be would, the short answer would be no, because I haven't thought about that kind of formally. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, my experience of the game is that um, those conversations are generally um, kind of atmospheric. Let me give you an example of what I mean mm-hmm. by that. Yeah. So when I if, when you first start, when many people first start playing. Um, Skyrim they end up in River Run, right that first town that you come to after you escape Helgen and there is a merchant in that town and this is the golden claw um, uh quest for those of you who are familiar with the game but one of the first things that happens is you go to see a merchant mm-hmm. and he talks about how he has some money he's a shipment of, he has a shipment of money coming in yeah. which he would be glad to give you if you take the time to go and find this dragon claw that has been stolen or otherwise taken from him. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be a real specific example of, of, of your question. You know, that's a merchant who's saying, you know, I have some finances. I don't have them yet, but I'll give them to you if you do X, Y, or Z for me.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, it's not the case, though. I think that those kinds of conversations are kind of broadly distributed in the game. So there's moments like that where here's a real specific instance of uh, a merchant saying i don't have the money yet that i'm going to get um but it will be here soon which would suggest you know economic conditions of need and want and things like that Um, um, so that does occur in the game uh but i would say it's not it's not something that i would associate broadly with merchants in the game
3: Mm. now one way to specific specify or contextualize the term poverty is uh, the little addendum relative poverty and could you please explain to us or our listeners what does it what does it mean and what makes it so fruitful for your discussion or your work
4: yeah no that's a really good point so i think it's important to start um as you kind of implied here the word poverty is a really challenging word to use critically mm. uh, because poverty is a highly contextual concept, right? Um, It's the kind of thing where when we use it, people tend to have a sense that they understand what it means. uh, And oftentimes, it's a very functional sense of what it means. Mm -hmm. But when we start to actually apply it to specific situations, all these things suddenly pop up in terms of, well, how is it that I, um, how do I define it? How do I note it? How do I chart it? All of that kind of stuff. And so, I found it necessary in the book to um, certainly kind of move into the world of economics, at least a little bit, for some guidance. And there's two terms that I think can be used to kind of help answer that question. So we want to make a distinction. Uh, Let's just take poverty and you put it aside for a second. And I'm going to put up two terms here, uh, kind of absolute poverty and and relative poverty. Now, I Mm -hmm. use relative uh, poverty quite a bit. In the book, um, absolute poverty can just be thought of as you know being in a situation where an individual or a household you know lacks the means for basic survival. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty straightforward way to think about it. Yeah. Um, I don't focus too much on that um, in the book for for a couple of reasons I, I might address later. I do use relative poverty, and relative poverty can be thought of um, as a as a condition where household income or an individual's income is a certain percentage kind of below a median income okay so in terms of the games i'm looking at i'm not working with hard numbers necessarily to establish something like median income within a community mm-hmm. or you know a city or a town or something like that but 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 there are indicators in games that an individual um, or a, a family or a house or a community um, uh, is in a position of having you know, f- less uh, financial resources or fewer financial resources than other people in the same community. Yeah. So I kind of start with that idea of, of relative poverty. So it's poverty with respect to what? And that question, and then the, the term might be useful here, that way of thinking about it could could be useful if we go back to the Skyrim example for a second where when you walk into the slum in Windhelm, there are all of these kind of verbal and visual cues that the people in a certain area have less in the way of, you know, material and financial resources than other people in their community. Um, uh, that sense is challenged when you talk to the merchants, for example. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's that kind of reasoning. So, you know, within the community of Windhelm, the the dark elf you know slum uh is defined by an apparent uh uh, with having fewer resources than the other quarters within the city the other parts of the city um and that become. and then you have the ability to make comparisons and start to come up with with some hypotheses about why those distinctions exist
0: yeah
1: Come seek the Royal Caribbean ships registry Bahamas.
3: Well, I'd like to to introduce my next question with a with a quote uh, on page seventy six. You write, "While the techno masculine can be considered as a contextualizing force for a poverty thematic, it is important to note that the phenomenon itself has evident limitations." In its associations with poverty, thematics generally. So um, let's pick this apart one by one. Then, how how would you define this this uh, term of techno masculine, and what role does it play in your book?
4: Sure, let's. That's a great question. Thank you for it. Let's let's kind of move towards it this way. Let's first start with the idea of the poverty them- thematic, or the idea that game developers and designers might. Um, use poverty or create representations of poverty to establish a theme or themes within games or to contribute atmospherically to the player's engagement with, you know, a certain uh, moment or moments in the game. Yeah. So poverty can be a, a, something that's used in the game to kind of drive the player to do X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. or it can also be used to help influence, well, it can be used to help influence the choices or the direction that a player takes. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that's one thing I talk about in the book, and maybe we'll come back to that in a, in a couple of moments. In terms of the techno-masculine, which is a really wonderful and productive concept that comes uh, from Carly Kosurik's Coin Operated Americans, um, which I would strongly recommend to anybody uh, who has not read it yet and is interested in game studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very... Mm-hmm. It's a very insightful, very detailed, kind of broadly applicable work um, that um, talks about the development of the video game arcade and a number of other things. I'm not trying to, not trying to reduce its scope because it has a great scope. Um, but one of the things that Koseric does so well in that text um, is she introduces this, this idea that um, a lot of competition, um, a lot of kind of structural organization of gameplay that is competition based can be connected with this broader idea of the techno masculine, this idea Mm -hmm. that to put it, to put it very, very simply, and she does a better job than I will here. This idea that um, uh, what what might be considered traditionally, you know, masculine, I put a big asterisk behind that because it's the words being used to indicate something that's problematic. uh, But kind of traditionally masculine notions of dominance and competition and victory and all of those kinds of things. Uh, find an expression in video game, video game playing, mm-hmm. um, and so when people play video games, they're you know trying to get the highest score. They're trying to be on top of the leaderboards. They're trying to essentially dominate all the other players um, that they encounter. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and she, one of the ways that she's addressing this is in the in the context of video game arcade, uh, like like game rankings. So you get a certain score, and it would say, okay, this person is number one, and this person is number two, and she t- she talks about esports as well, and anyway, it's a, it's a good yeah. book. But the idea here is that the, so poverty themes. Um, if we take a game like, if I can talk for just a couple of minutes, I think I can illustrate this with World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. uh, with the opening of World of Warcraft. So a couple of things that happened at the beginning of World of Warcraft that I think relate to the idea of poverty as a theme, and also the techno masculine. So when I start playing World of Warcraft, and I know you can start in a lot of ways, and I know there's many different versions of World of Warcraft that have come out, but if I'm just going to play a basic human alliance c- character in like a classic version of World of Warcraft, okay, one of the things that happens um, kind of immediately is that I am presented with a character generation screen. Mm-hmm. And let's say I'm playing a, a fighter or a wizard in World of Warcraft. So one of the very first things that comes up as I'm generating my character is this image of the of the of the warrior, for example, um, and the warrior has all this armor on and all this kind of expensive equipment, and they're just comp- they they look kind of amazing in terms of all of the all of the items that they have, um, and it looks like it costs a lot of money. Yeah. And as as soon as you start to generate that character, it kind of rips all of that away, and they're replaced with these very basic kind of ragged clothes. Mm -hmm. and these are the clothes that you will start the game in. So the game player kind of sees this image of this very – you know, dramatic, kind of uh, uh, incredibly expensive version of the individual that, that they're playing. And then they see this dirt cheap version of the individual mm-hmm. that they're playing.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
4: and one of the ideas inherent is in that is that you as the player, one of your jobs is to go and attain that status again. Like you have fallen from that high position and now you have to go back and get to that place again yeah and this is something that is repeated several different times at the beginning of such a world of Warcraft game. It, staying with the human alliance example, the game then begins with this like fly fly by overview that involves this massive uh, this massive settlement um stormwind, right mm-hmm. um at the um at the beginning of the game, which is all of these military armaments and a drawbridge and shops and everyone's running around. and you kind of fly directly out of that into the northshire garrison which is by contrast again much reduced um not necessarily impoverished but it has none of the grandeur of the city that you just saw so again mm-hmm. there's this distinction of moving from a representation of great wealth to something that is comparatively or relatively impoverished with respect to that and so then so then that's where you land
2: mm-hmm.
4: um, and then yet again when you start the game This us do my last example before i go back to your your excellent question when I, when i start the game um in northshire if i'm perceptive at all one of the things i see is that all around me there are all of these people who have been playing the game for a long time rushing around and yeah. they have all of these visible signs of accomplishment the spells they cast the armor they wear the swords they have all of that kind of stuff again sets up this very dramatic distinction between uh, where I am and where it is I might go in terms of acquiring wealth and prestige and all those kinds of things. So the game is really hammering away at me with respect to the techno-masculine to convey to me that I am on the bottom of the pile uh, and it's now time to start climbing out of that pile uh, to become more powerful, to have more wealth, to have more weapons, that kind of stuff. OK, so that that would be the idea of um, how the techno masculine this kind of need or desire to develop and dominate and advance can be communicated uh, to a player of a game like World of Warcraft, uh, you know, from the very moment that they start playing the game.
3: That's really so it's, I'm sorry. It's just I was just thinking about something and a deep real quick. Would you would you then also agree to the idea that this. In that case, World of Warcraft functions as some sort of of training process for the for the recognition of um, cultural and symbolic capital,
4: while oh, hammering. Absolutely. And,
3: yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Oh yeah. So I didn't mean I didn't mean to cut you off. Please please finish your question. But yes, I was yes, just I agree thinking with because,
3: really, by 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 repeating these these process you were just describing from rags to riches somehow, of course you need to you need to um, reckon or um, the the inner logics and grammars of the game actually and see what's uh, what does it, what does it mean in this game world well, to be rich? What does it mean to be successful? Right?
4: Yes. Yes. Hmm. And that training training the player um you know in that way for a company like like activision blizzard or i guess now microsoft but training a player in that way is you know i assume quite rewarding for the for the company because one of the things it's doing is it's it's essentially it's essentially indicating to players how they might spend their time in the game yeah Mm -hmm. Um, they might spend their time pursuing x y or z that's Crucial in a game like World of Warcraft, where you are essentially playing through a subscription service. So your every action that you take in the game is kind of monetized with respect to your monthly fee for playing the game. Yeah. Um, one of the things, to, to go back to the techno-masculine, one of the things that's interesting about World of Warcraft for me kind of beyond that is that there, there are... There are opportunities in a game like World of Warcraft, um, where you're working within such a system to actually resist um, that kind of uh, kind of being led by the nose uh, by the game. And what I mean by that is, in in World of Warcraft and in, in similar games, there's also this this ability that players have to just simply not advance, <laughs> to just simply waste time uh, within a, b, or c location. So. To go back to the earlier, you know, example, when I'm in the Northshire Garrison, I can rush around to, you know, to, to to get rid of the the wolves, to get the rewards, to get the money, to leave, and I can do quest A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also just do nothing, yeah. um, or I could do very little um, that wouldn't be productive. And I, I find that fascinating as well. So games like that certainly do function as training modules for for capital, for acquisition, you know, they train, they train, you know, children and teenagers and others about, you know, uh, you know, certain, certain values for operating in a market system. Um, but there's also this possibility of, of being engaged with the game, um, at least, you know, in a minimal way, and not necessarily um, being engaged with those kinds of practices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, which I, so in terms of thematics, you know, that, that's the other part of the, the quote. In terms of the poverty thematics, the the the, the ability to to kind of um, remain in an impoverished state um, is itself, I think, interesting. Um, with a game like World of Warcraft, for for a couple of reasons, one of which is that some of this work uh, comes out of a response to a piece by Alexander Galloway called "Social Realism in Gaming." Oh, yeah. And it's an older piece that was published around 2004. Um, and one of the ideas that Galloway presents is this idea that he, he he says, you know, there's something happening in gaming, essentially paraphrasing here. And one of the interesting things about gaming for him in the early 2000s was this idea that, you know, it's possible that a, a player's social situation And the social or the uh, the social situation represented in a game could overlap. There could be some similarities. Um, Mm -hmm. He talks about how, like, if I'm playing, you know, like a Call of Duty type game or a modern warfare game and I'm in, you know, I'm in New England, for example. He doesn't say New England, but I'll just use it as an example. I'm in New England and I'm playing a Call of Duty game or a modern warfare game there's a pretty good chance the game is not taking place in New England. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm playing a game where war is happening somewhere else in the world, and, you know, and I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, but one of the things that he points out is this idea that, well, there are certainly people who play games within the war zones that are um, represented in the game. In fact, there, in a modern example of this, there was some reporting around gaming in, in the Ukraine, I think, at the beginning of the, the most recent conflict with Russia. Mm -hmm. about game players who are finding themselves playing uh you know representations of war while they themselves were living in uh, an area that was under conflict and one of the things galloway talks about is this this congruence this like meaningful connection between the game players social situation and the and the social situation that's being represented in the video game it's an it's a neat idea i don't mean that dismissively i just it's it's a as he presents it in 2004, it's this hyper-specific you know, circumstance where, well, my life conditions might match up kind of almost perfectly with the game, and, and that would be meaningful. In the, in the book, one of the things I'm trying to do is, is build upon that a little bit by just trying to get a, a little more general about how the, the player's social situation uh, may lead them to make decisions when they play a video game. So when I'm playing a game like like World of Warcraft, you know, as and as you pointed out, the game can can function as kind of a training manual for, you know, capitalist systems. Um, and I may be coming to the game as an individual who is otherwise always kind of surrounded by such systems. I'm coming from a capitalist society. Um, you know, I already have these values. The game is enacting those values. Those things are lining up perfectly for me. It all makes sense that I would have to go buy my clothes at a store and that I'd have to work to get the money to buy my clothes and like all of that kind of stuff might already make perfect sense to me. Um, But we might also imagine that players are very diverse and people might come to such a game with any number of economic values, some of which may make a world like the one revealed in World of Warcraft make sense in terms of the market systems, but it may also estrange them from the world and make it really hard for them to understand uh, why the world kind of looks and functions the way it does economically. Um, so, you know, to, to go to go back to the to the quote on the technomasculine, um, I think one of the things I I'm trying to underscore in the book is this idea that players arrive at games with unique values, and the game that they play um can engage with those values um uh to a certain extent. Um Uh, to lead the player, to make different decisions, but that the player is is certainly kind of the X factor uh, in those kinds of relationships.
2: Hmm.
3: You also talk about, and I quote here, the the intersection of identity and gaming in modern markets. Now we have been talking about markets quite a bit, but I wonder where would you put this intersection you are talking about, and why is this relevant at all uh, to frame these markets, markets as, uh, as you say, modern?
4: It's a great question. Um, to the to the first to the first part of the question, um, the the issues of identity. The intersection, for me, occurs at the level of criticism, by mm-hmm. which I mean the academic uh, assessments of identity and its relevance to gaming that start popping up kind of post uh, great or global recession, which I think is a real, a real distinct moment for game studies as a discipline. Uh, you can almost draw, it's not, it's not quite this clean, but you can almost draw uh, a bright line, uh, with respect to kind of formalist analysis of, um, uh, video games and gaming structures that kind of, it kind of extends up to about 2007. That's not to say no one else is doing it. I'm just saying it's, it's, it seems to be a much bigger part of the conversation, uh, up until about 2007 and then post, you know, post 2009, um, uh, we see many more voices uh speaking up in in different ways about different subjects many of which relate to identity mm-hmm. um, if i was going to postulate you know why that might be the case i think there are a, there are a few relevant things um one i think is the a kind of rapid expansion of the video game industry throughout the early 2010s Um, and then the kind of explosion in video game playing that occurred during the global great recession. So there's many more voices at the table. There's many more participants at the table. I think it's also, um, a product of, um, one of the most consistent things about game studies, as far as I can tell, which is that most of the major publications are intensely interdisciplinary intentionally in their Mm -hmm. design. Um, you know, not just merely as a matter of survival, but, um, um, just as a matter of practice, uh, I would think of a site like, um, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of sites that jump to mind. I'm not trying to exclude anyone, but if you look at like gamestudies.org and you read their mission statement and you look at how, who they've published over the past couple of decades and you read someone like, you know, first person scholar or not your mama's gamer, yeah. uh, all great sites and all of them. Uh, when you read their mission statement and then look at look at what they're publishing, they 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 place a critical value on uh, the breadth of the voices that are represented um, in terms of background. Sometimes it's just academic background, but then more and more, I think, with more modern publications, it's it's not just your academic background. It's also you know who's writing, uh, you know who who is saying this. Um, yeah. That's significant too. So, in terms of the intersection of you know of identity and, and markets, there's this there's this effort. Um, this this there's well, I don't know if, if effort's the right word necessarily because I don't know if it's organized. But there's this there's this massive interest in in talking about identity and its relation to, to gaming experiences. Um, you know, it can can also associate with this a number of uh, like you know. 2013 I think Gamergate right around then Mm -hmm. things like that but just you know a a collective history of of trauma for a number of people in terms of the kinds of voices that are often elevated um, often elevated um, in public interactions with gaming communities so you know am I likely to encounter you know racism or homophobia or misogyny or any number of kinds of voices when I log into a Gameplay chat, you know, in the early 2010s, the answer is yes. Like that's mm-hmm. that's part of what's going on for many players. And so, by the time we get to, you know, I think post, I think post Great Recession, um, early 2010s, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of desire, I think, on the part of people who like video games to to clean up the space uh, with respect to conceptions of identity, who's playing, how they play, why they play. Um, and that excites me because for me that gets it gets to a number of good points. But one of the points it gets to for me is this idea of yeah, you know, it, it's great for us to talk about making gaming more diverse and more accessible. I'm, I'm all for that. As part of that effort, I think there needs to be a focused conversation on what are we getting out of this. Um, and you know, I use we collectively, but what does the individual get out of playing games or specific games? Uh, so I find that exciting. And then, in terms of modern markets, I, 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 you know, it would be hard to imagine uh, a conversation um, about video games right now that does not take those kinds of things into serious consideration. Um, um, it, would, it would be hard for me to imagine scholarship that is um, would would operate as if this conversation hasn't been occurring for the last, yeah. let's say. It's, let's say, 12, 13 years um, in a broad-based way.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, actually, let's stick with the field of game studies then for our last question in regards to your book. As we all know, between the the beginning of a writing process and the final publication, we see a lot of water going down the river. Um, actually, I don't know whether this is an English expression as well. I think it's a German one, but okay. <laughs> Well, yeah. Uh, The secret. The
4: the English one is the water under the bridge. So an English speaker would say it's it's water under the bridge.
3: That's so funny. Um, I mean, I I didn't think I didn't think about this for a second. But right now, I'm just—is this even English? Well, (laughs) funny. But you understood right. Okay. Um, Are there any recent trends or publications you would like to mention that tackle your field of discourse? Then, and if so. What what do they bring to the table?
4: Sure, I think the most exciting work happening right now is well, okay. So I have to back up because there's a lot I want to talk about.
2: <laughs> okay. Um,
4: Okay, so let me. I'm going to try to make sense of it this way, and I I need about a 30 second run up to this. So I apologize if what I if I what I start with doesn't sound immediately apparent. But I think (laughs) I hope this gets to your question because I'm excited about what comes next. Yeah. So okay, if we just take for a second, um, I want I want to answer your question by talking about a bookstore, if that makes any sense. It probably Mm -hmm. doesn't immediately. But in the United States, um, there was a very large bookstore chain called Borders Books. And they were all over the United States. This is not an ad for Borders, but Borders <laughs> is a bookstore that has gone out of business. Okay, and if you were like me, and you grow up, you grew up going to college near a Borders book store. Um, you, you probably spent a lot of time in Borders books. Um, mm-hmm. And if you walked into Borders books, there would be all kinds of great books. And you'd look at the books in the magazine, and you would get a coffee, and you'd have a nice afternoon, and, and you'd go home when Borders started to experience some, some economic issues, the books that were always in the front of the store uh, were suddenly replaced uh, with a bunch of like junk, like greeting cards and pillows and children's toys. So mm-hmm. suddenly when I walked into Borders, there were all these other kinds of items that I had to wade through to get to the actual books. And for me, that was a real strong indicator that Borders was in crisis, that Borders was having a hard time kind of selling itself to consumers anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: I mentioned that because what gets me so excited about Game Studies, and where I think all the exciting stuff that's happening in Game Studies right now, is it's kind of happening in this shake-up space, where it's not necessarily traditional monographs and traditional... You know, edited collections. There's a number of great ones. I, I don't want to diminish them, but there's all this kind of new stuff that's kind of coming into the field, I'm not calling game studies borders, but there's all this new kinds of stuff like um, uh, middle state publications, uh, which is a term that first person scholar uses for their e-publication and which is also picked up by Not Your Mama's Gamer. Yeah. Um, on their blog as well. Um, but this idea of of middle state writing, which is essentially um an effort that has been around in game studies for a long time under under different names, but it's this idea that game study scholarships should be, you know, something that is fundamentally academic, but also something that's accessible to a broad base of readers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of what's most exciting to me, um, in the past, in the past, you know, three, four, five years, is how publishers have tried to produce more middle state writing. Um, so, first person scholar has tried, not your mama's gamer has tried. So that that's been really interesting to watch happen. There's this interplay between: well, is this a journal or is this a blog piece? And one of the things I do in the book is I talk about these sites and I talk about you know. Um, their citation records at least up to 2022 when I was when I finished the book um, to just give some sense that a lot of good conversations around game studies right now aren't necessarily stemming off of traditional monographs uh, or edited collections those things are relevant but there's more and more interest in these kind of middle state sites so mm-hmm. this kind of kind of distinct way of talking about video games that's accessible um, to people not just from a broad range of academic disciplines but also people who are just simply thinking about pursuing you know higher education or becoming invested in a field that's more formalized in higher education so so the middle state stuff's happening this is gonna sound like I'm I'm patting uh, maybe both of us on the back too hard but the explosion yeah. of game studies podcasts you know that's exciting like uh, you know there are now a half dozen dozen or so really consistent, very good podcasts on um, game studies that didn't exist, um, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that meaningful. You know, you were talking about video game playing and listening to podcasts, the ability to access, you know, podcasts on game studies, which is still, you know, a niche community. But the fact that there are now a half dozen or so podcasts that one can have ready access to democratizes the field in a lot of ways because it moves those kind of conference-specific conversations out into a space where basically, you know, many more people can access them, usually for free. I'm very excited about that um, because one of the things that's really important to understand about video games is that there is an incredibly high price to enter the field. There is a high technical cost. People need to have the money for the resources to play the games and the time to play the games. And that cost is not necessarily something that can be easily paid or paid at all by people who potentially have the most to add to the field. Um, um, getting you know, commentary and criticism and responses from kids who didn't grow up with the latest and greatest video game systems, from, you know, from people who don't have access to the latest game when it comes out, from people who are... Only living through the effects of participating in a society that is more and more frequently uh, gamifying daily activities, I, I find the middle state authors and I find the you know the podcast efforts to be very very useful um, because they're going to help broaden the field. I think even more dramatically um, um, than it has been in the past. So that stuff to me really jumps out. So in terms of you know blogs to check out um the ones i've mentioned i think are great again i'm not trying to diminish formal academic publications um but um, um, you know in, in terms of formal academic publications i would say something like um uh, gray and leonard's uh, woke gaming which mm-hmm. is a text i used pretty significantly when i was writing my book uh, was ex- was exciting it was exciting to me because of its its potential you know and that's also a thing i think about game studies books I I find game studies texts in in my own experience to be meaningful and valuable. Um, But what is the best indicator to me that the, the field is the field has a lot to promise or the field is promising is that these texts tend to just convey the idea. There's a lot of potential here. If somebody just pays attention to this, just pay attention to this. There's a lot here. Um, um, And so I, the level of monograph edited collection, that's, that's where I get most excited, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess, you know, the, the other side of that question, the, the part that I'm, I'm finding myself less and less excited by, but more and more aware of is, and this is more evident on, you know, social media sites, but game studies is unfortunately very, very vulnerable to being co-opted by marketing and marketers. It's mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. so like, oh, I'm very excited about this latest yeah. game. And let me tell you how much I've played this latest game. I'm finding myself with the kind of less and less tolerance for that as i as I do this for longer and longer. I don't want to deny anybody's joy about being excited about a, b or C game, but like the the um there's just some static I, I i for me, there's some static or there's some noise uh in some of the traditional game studies uh kind of streams um at least online um and I think it's largely coming from marketers recognizing that this is a this is a market of people who will buy. Uh, almost anything (laughs) that is put out, not because they're not critical, but because they want to be critical. They want to say, well, I've played all the games, I've tried all the things. Um, And so that for me is a little worrisome but i don't quite know what to do about that yet other than just try to be more and more aware of it
3: fantastic because it's given me so many ideas i we, we could spend another hour talking about this actually because i was just thinking about all the all the video game essayists um, i'm constantly watching on youtube guys like like ahoy or jacob geller or uh, euro 4000 they're so they're so clever people and this is a very interesting mixture of of critical game analysis and also criti- a new form of game journalism and they come mm-hmm. up with so many clever ideas and they also have the the cultural knowledge and technical knowledge to back it up with uh, with their um editing skills and show actually show us what what are they talking about this is something game studies i think has a massive problem they we because we're talking about such a medium and all its audio visual visual medium but we just seem to stick to to the textual paradigm and can't really move forward right and Mm -hmm. this is something that's really interesting also um also, so speaking of the next generation, when now nowadays when I when I read the the works of my BA students, they they, they write in a form. That I, I wish I knew all these terms in my PhD back in 2009. I really say they are so. it's really amazing. So it's a great time. But at the same time, it, it's true what you actually is what you say. This is very costly. And I can I I do remember when I was talking to my supervisor. Um, back in the day and I told him, um, I cannot include these these five or six games because I don't have the whatever I don't have the, the platform or the technology to emulate this. I ex- I saw in his eyes he did not understand what I was talking about. He just mm. could not relate and this is a problem obviously. Um, but yeah, we should definitely this is a, this is, this is the stuff for the next book. this is it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Sounds good to me.
3: Yeah. I've t- I've taken a lot of your time. Um please tell me uh, what are you working on right now and of course what will you be playing next?
4: I what I'm working on and what I'm playing next are very closely related. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm I was fortunate enough to be uh, asked to contribute to a collection on Horizon Zero Dawn. Mm-hmm. And so I am spending time with that game and also the uh the sequel. Um, to that game um, and so that that's a that's a concern for me um, and I'm thinking about the game I'm thinking about some of the ways in which the game um, uh, I, I'm interested in this is not my own interest there's this this neat literary study that came out a couple of years ago about literature and gimmicks um, yeah. and so I'm interested in defining this concept of gimmicks and thinking about how it might be related or relatable to um, to horizon zero dawn um, for this collection that's coming out uh, through, through eventually through MacFarlane press um, they have a great editor over there Matthew Capel um, and um, he's put out a lot of books and so it's, it's been a it's a real honor to be asked to contribute to it um, and that's what I'm working on I'm working on it too slowly I need to finish the I need to finish my work this <laughs> month um, but it's a good excuse to uh, get to and in, invested in a game that I didn't have a chance to play when it first came out um, because I was, I was working on some other projects, so it's nice to get to go back to it, um, and, uh, and, and learn, and, and learn, learn more about it. Um, but it's one of those issues too, though, because there's this question of access because it's a PlayStation game and I have a, I have a, I have an Xbox. You're one of the good yeah,
3: guys. Yes. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm going to say that as well. Um, um, yeah, it, it yeah, because, I mean, well, there's a lot of reasons, but I, I don't want to start a, a war online here. But the um, <laughs> the game the game is a great game, and, and it's a fun project with some good people. So I feel very lucky to have a chance to do it.
3: Yeah, that sounds like a great project. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed it, obviously, because I was talking, I think I was talking a lot more than usual shows, to be, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, take care, and you have a good one.
4: You as well. Thank you.
3: So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of game studies, game scholarship, game culture, broadly speaking yourself, and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Inderst almost everywhere. Goodbye.
1: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.